for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, we roll the dice on some new board games that take inspiration from educational games of the past to try to tackle big societal issues on the small board. Find out how. And from past times of the past to those very much in the present and in the future, you find out more about all the fuss surrounding Apple's new Vision Pro headset marking its entry into so-called spatial computing. What is it? Why is it so expensive? And is it really a game changer? NDP Member of Parliament for Vancouver East, Jenny Kwan, has been told by CSIS that she is and has been a target for Beijing. So foreign interference in Canada's electoral process is both political and personal for her. And she joins us to talk about what has to be done about it. But first, it's being called everything from apocalyptic to Martian-like wildfire smoke from Canada is choking the skies over several U.S. cities, including New York, where the air quality was the worst on record. We get a first-hand account from the streets of the Big Apple. But let's get to that story about New York City, because the Yankees aren't playing tonight. Hamilton on Broadway was canceled. Uh, apparently, there was a Hamlet in Central Park that's been canceled. It has been a apocalyptic or smokeopolyptic day in the Big Apple, the Big Apocalypse, as they were calling it today. It's experiencing its worst day of air quality in recorded history. And that doesn't go back that far, but still uh, gives you an idea. So Canadian wildfire smoke pouring in to the U.S. Here's one Fox News headline. Heavy haze creates Martian-like scene in New York. So that kind of says it all. Um, U.S. health officials are warning people to stay indoors or wear masks if outside. Uh, Tiffany Murray was visiting New York. You know, lots of people visit New York, of course, this time of year. She says so far it's been okay. I was a little leery about it as well, but I'm here on a school field trip that was pre-planned. Students are getting something to eat, so we just recommended that they all wear masks, and we bought extra masks because me having being asthmatic myself, I was a little bit concerned. So what is the air quality in New York right now? 264 is what it's at. That's very unhealthy. Earlier in the day, it was up above 300, which is considered hazardous, and that was the worst air quality in the world. The second was Dubai, somewhere in the 160s. So you can imagine just how bad it is. And, you know, listen, people are concerned. Here's New York Mayor Eric Adams. But this is an unprecedented event in our city, and New Yorkers must take precaution. The New York State Department of Environmental Conservation has issued an air quality health advisory for all five boroughs. Our team is coordinating and Deputy First Deputy Mayor uh, Sheena Wright will go into that coordination. But at the moment, we recommend vulnerable New Yorkers stay inside. And all New Yorkers should limit outdoor activity to the greatest extent possible. New York uh, Mayor Eric Adams there. And this isn't just New York, by the way. This is all over New York State, as well as in Washington and Philadelphia, right up and down the Atlantic coastline and so on. So uh, Canadian wildfire smoke, not only creating problems here at home, but also across the border. Uh, Duncan D., who we often speak to about aviation issues, tonight we're going to talk to him as a tourist because he happens to be in New York City, right in the midst of that haze of that apocalypse. Duncan, welcome. Good evening, Ben. So, I mean, I saw some of your photos on Twitter. Uh, uh, wow, wow. I, I don't know what it's like on the ground, but the, the photos have been just unbelievable. And it got worse during the day. What's it been like? 
Look, the photos this morning um, don't actually even do it justice because, you know, the photos, the cameras on these phones don't uh, provide you with a real uh, visibility on the changes that are taking place and the amount of change that you see throughout the morning. The photos I took were somewhere around lunchtime and you could still see buildings about four blocks away from where you were standing. Um, By the time uh, I was walking at around 2.30 in the afternoon, you couldn't see past probably two blocks away from where you were standing. Um, And, you know, New York is filled with tall buildings that uh, are generally very, very visible on uh, on a generally good day. But things were just very eerily um, smoggy and, you know, almost like a movie set, uh, you know, predicting an apocalypse uh, at around 2.30, 3 o'clock this afternoon. Yeah. What's it been like just to be in that air? I mean, I remember air of that kind from other places around the world, but uh, what's it like just to to breathe it in? Look, Ben, like you just said, you know, uh, folks who have traveled to uh, large polluted cities uh, in Asia are used to seeing people on an ordinary day pre-COVID wearing masks uh, to get around just to protect themselves from the pollution. You know, people do that in places like Bangkok in Thailand, for example, or Taipei mm-hmm. in Taiwan. But, you know, uh, a lot of people uh, would never see that anywhere in Western Europe or North America. Today, as the day went on, the number of people wearing N95 masks went from probably about uh, 15 to 20 percent to over 50 percent by, by the time I was walking around at 3 o'clock. And my own eyes were starting to get irritated closer to uh, 3 o'clock. Earlier on in the day, I almost was a little too uh, confident that uh, it wasn't really as bad as people had said it would be. But uh, by the uh, middle of the afternoon, it was bad. And the local uh, government, the city of New York government, is predicting that it's going to get worse tonight before it gets better uh, sometime towards Friday. Yeah, I saw I saw those predictions of what was going to happen overnight. Sort of go back up into the into the really hazardous uh, elements. Well, I, apparently, people were asked to stay home. But again, you know, you're in New York. For what are you doing in New York? I should I should have asked. Are you there on business or is it pleasure? I actually live part time in New York, so I ah, I've, okay. I've lived here for uh, over ten years. So I, I split my time between Canada and the and the U.S. And my place in the U.S. is in New York. So I'm here. Okay. Um, uh, you know, as a resident, and to, just to give you an idea, uh, buildings in New York received notifications from the city of New York government, which they uh, forwarded to their uh, residents to ask people to keep their windows closed. So, you know, on a right. day like today, where the temperatures are in the, you know, low 20s, high teens, uh, centigrade, um, a lot of New Yorkers would just keep their windows open because, you know, it's such a nice day. But uh, uh, today, people were advised to keep their windows closed and to just remain indoors when they didn't have to be to limit their exposure to the elements, especially if they had any uh, health issues. Uh, And so people are wearing N95 masks, I believe, uh, to be particularly cautious. But uh, the government uh, has let it out that they, they would prefer people to stay indoors, much like during the pandemic. Now, most New Yorkers aren't heeding that advice. They're taking... Uh, you know, just like they did during the pandemic, they're taking their daily walks, they're going in about their regular business, but a lot more than I would have expected are actually putting on these masks. Well, 
And I guess, I mean, I've never heard the word Canada mentioned so much in New York newscasts in a 24-hour period than I have in the past 24 hours. The name of this country is splashed absolutely everywhere. I guess you're not waving your your passport around these days. Or, or are you hearing much about Canada on the streets? Are they blaming us? Oh, my goodness. It's not just the newscasts. Uh, uh, I, I was on the subway today, the, uh, the F train, um, in uh, the Upper East Side of uh, Manhattan, and... Uh, the number of people who were talking about Canada and the Canadian wildfires, I think it would be the exception rather than the rule that you weren't talking about Canada today because people were just so shocked to see this very soupy, almost yellow uh, sky. And, you know, the weather forecast today was for sunny weather, so they weren't seeing much sun. It was basically this haze that was obscuring their view. Uh, we had a little bit of that last night um, at around uh, supper time before sunset, um, but, you know, people didn't really equate that with too much uh, unusual. They sort of thought it was just maybe, um, you know, the sun setting a little bit earlier and, the, uh, you know, an unusual uh, glow to the sun. But today, when it was happening at the very middle of the day, it, it just felt so weird and eerie that there was this haze that was pretty much covering everything. And, you know, people weren't sure whether the soot they saw on people's cars was typical New York, uh, you know, messy car habits, or it was right. actually the result of what's taking place that, that they're seeing right now. But yeah. Canada is on everybody's lips in New York today. And, and not necessarily in a good way, <laughs> I guess. No, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I think it's very hard for them to, to, you know, blame Canada like South Park would, but I think right. that, um, you know, the, the, the word Canada is on everybody's lips to, um, to, you know, for the, for the wrong reasons. I mean, to give you an idea, at the worst, uh, you were talking about the particular, particular count today, the, at the worst of it, New York was at 325, you know, down in the yeah. Jersey coast, just down um, the highway, the interstate from New York City was 359. So, you know, these places were just hitting record levels of, of particulates in the, in the air. Um, you know, southern Ontario was at 107. So things may have been bad in southern Ontario, but the U.S. Northeast, particularly the tri-state area around New York, was hitting records that they've never, ever seen before. Duncan, this, I mean, to put your old hat back on, this looks like a really bad day for just about everything that needs to move in and around uh, New York and Washington and so on. But certainly in the skies, it must be, for anyone thinking of coming in and out of New York in the next uh, 24 hours, I would, uh, I would beware. Yeah, I mean, the FAA has a very helpful website where they, they provide information on uh, delays throughout the U.S., uh, air transportation network, and both LaGuardia Airport in uh, New York and Newark Airport, which is, as you know, a nearby airport that serves the greater Newark area, both of those airports had a ground delay programs, or GDPs, for much of the day because of low visibility. JFK at, at points during the day also had ground delay programs because of low visibility, but you've got the three largest airports in the tri-state area here in uh, New York, which were basically... Uh, asking aircraft to hold before taking off for New York because they just couldn't handle the volume given the low visibility caused by the wildfire smoke that has basically engulfed uh, the area here in, uh, in New York. Yeah, there were reports of passengers saying that the insides of the planes as they were coming into land smelled smoky, which, which can't be a good feeling. Not at all. I mean, if, you, if you're walking around New York, um, you know, people are used to uh, uh, fog in, in the New York area. They're, they're used to, uh, even at times, uh, because of uh, pollutants, 
seeing haze, but rarely do they actually smell what they're seeing. Uh, today, what the people saw and what they smelt was really unusual, and so everybody was just, you know, there were the number of people that you would see from the streets looking outside their windows was uh, incredible because people were just trying to take in this unusual sight. You know, as you said, the Fox News called it, I think, Martian. It was just yeah. such a strange feeling, very eerie, um, especially at a time when New Yorkers have just gone through the eeriness of the pandemic, when these streets were empty and you could fire a gun down without uh, down one of these streets without hitting a single individual. Now, today, it was just this other weirdness where it was just filled with this haze that was soupy, a smell that was very distinct, and, you know, the crowds were just trying to figure out what was going on, and obviously everybody uh, kept their ears close to uh, the radio to figure out what the, the health authorities were saying about what they should be doing, and, and throughout the day, as I said earlier, more and more people were putting on masks. Yeah. I was in New York, I guess, in August of 2003 for that massive blackout, the same one that hit Toronto. And it's just such an interesting city to be in whenever, whenever anything major happens, because there are so many people in New York that whenever some sort of disaster or some sort of event goes on, I mean, you just you, you, can, you can feel it, right? It's different than being, say, back at home. Not too much different, but there's just something about New York City. It's like everything exponentially, right? So uh, are you going to yeah, change? Is, are you, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I think what makes this uh, uh, different from what we've seen in the past, too, is the speed of the information. You know, people are glued to their phones, glued to their radios. They know exactly what's going on and the reason for what's going on. And so people are just spreading this information. You know, unfortunately, like wildfire, they're getting the views out there. And people are, are as you said earlier, have Canada on their lips. Right. Are you, are you, are you, is this going to alter your plans for the next few days? Or are you going to lay low and keep the windows closed, put your feet up and just take it easy? Yeah, probably try to stay, uh, you know, I, I try to um, get my steps in <laughs> to keep my step count up, right. but uh, I won't be doing that as much over the next few days uh, until this, uh, I, you know, I was, I was actually earlier today planning on resuming my normal activity until this afternoon when I started feeling some burning in my eyes because obviously you can cover your, your nose and mouth with a mask, with a good quality N95 mask, but you can't do that with your eyes. And so by the end of my walk today, it was feeling a little irritated, and I you know, felt that it probably wasn't a good idea to expose myself for too, too long uh, with what's going on. Well, Duncan, an, an unfortunate taste of home for you in New York City right now. But thank you so much for, uh, for sharing all this. It's a, what, a, what a time to be there. And, uh, yeah, put a good word in for us. You know, sometimes we mostly send you good stuff. Sometimes we send you smoke. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Duncan. Good night. Thanks. It's not often that Canada gets mentioned at the White House, but Joe Biden had a call. The president had a call with Prime Minister Trudeau today to offer help um, with these wildfires. Obviously, now that the smoke has settled over America's some of America's biggest cities like New York and Washington, uh, the concern there with the wildfires burning, uh, you know, many, many, many kilometers north of them is suddenly heightened because they're tasting it. They're tasting it. nothing like big city folks seeing smoke to remind them that there are wildfires going on. Right. Same thing happens in Vancouver and other cities in the country. Um, so here's Corinne Jean-Pierre today talking about uh, the White House spokesperson talking about this, these incredible wildfires and the smoke that's descended not only on Washington, but also in New York, Philadelphia, and so on. I know for many communities out west, this is nothing new. 
They experience this every year, but it is certainly getting worse. It is yet another ex alarming example of the ways in which the climate crisis is disturbing our lives and our communities. Corinne Jean-Pierre there, the White House spokesperson. Folks on this side of the border contending with smoke-filled skies again today. The air quality index is moderate now in Toronto, uh, but expected to get worse again tomorrow. Here's what some had to say to Global News earlier today in the city. It's discouraging. It's a downer. It's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's not what you want. And now it's a, an issue, you know, becoming an issue across the country. It's not normal. I hope it's going to get back to normal because it's nice to see the beautiful landscape of Toronto. Um, hopefully it's going to get back to normal soon. There you have it, people on the streets of Toronto Day, where it is getting a little bit better, slowly but surely, but it's supposed to get a little bit worse before it gets better again. So thus the nature, the fickle nature, as we were talking about last night, the fickle nature of wildfire smoke and winds, right? It just blows the stuff around. And while we usually talk to my next guest about the fireworks on Parliament Hill, he happens to be in Ottawa, where the smoky skies are also a problem. It's not just the hot air emanating from Parliament Hill, of which every politician seems to be a uh, equal opportunity contributor. Uh, but there's also some smoky skies there too. And again, the fireworks on Parliament Hill as well. Joining me now is John Iveson. He's a political journalist with the National Post. He's author of Trudeau, the education of a prime minister. John, thanks for your time. Welcome back. Hi, Ben. Let's talk about the smoke because everyone seems to be talking about the smoky skies these days. I suppose for the maybe the first time, there are smoky skies for a huge swath of the eastern North American population. That's going to get people talking. How bad is it where you are? Yeah, well, it's pretty bad. I mean, you know, the last time I saw a sky like this, uh, Beijing, you know. That, right. Um, yeah, I live there. I live there. You're right. Right. That level terrible. of pollution, you 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 know that, that kind of, you can taste it, you can smell it. It's, it's everywhere. And it's pretty gloomy. You know, the sky seems to be uh, like Tupperware. It's just about five feet over your head. We've got that uh, at the moment. And I guess it brings it all home to the power brokers in Parliament and everywhere else that uh, this is not just something that happens remotely in you know northern Alberta and northern BC. Right. And, and then, of course, anytime the Americans turn their gaze towards us and not in a kind way, it always yeah. gets people talking uh, in the capital as well. I mean, I mean, is it prompted? What's the conversation? I mean, obviously, other people are talking about sort of the impacts of climate change and so on and so forth. But it hasn't seemed to have landed that way in Parliament just yet. No, well, there's been a few tortured extended metaphors about Parliament fiddling while while Ottawa burns or Canada <laughs> right. burns, but um, it doesn't seem to have percolated to the policy level yet. I mean, so we have been talking about, or the Conservatives in particular have been talking about carbon taxes and such like, which seems a little incongruous that they're going to kill the carbon tax at the same time as, you know, the country is is burning and, and clearly climate change is, has, has got an issue, a part to play there. It's a little bit weird that all this is going on outside the House, and yet inside the House of Commons, nothing has really changed. Right. The fireworks I was seeing today was more about the Bank of Canada's interest rate hike. This is always a, a potent one. It's odd, though, because when I was in Ottawa, I mean, the Bank of Canada, clearly the, the, in those days, the decisions weren't quite as um, controversial. But it was always somewhat apolitical. These days, it feels like it's been very much, I mean, these are clearly an independent body's decisions, and, and they, they quickly become political footballs. Yeah, I think that there's been a conscious decision by the leader of the opposition. I'm not sure it's a, a great idea to, to target the governor of the bank, who who he said he would uh, fire if he got half a chance. You know, the federal government does play into the interest rate decisions through through inflation. Poilier contends that the government uh, has been overspending, and that has kind of juiced the economy to the extent that it's pumped up inflation. 
And, you know, he, he has a point to some extent. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, nobody can say that the government hasn't uh, spent a lot of money in its time in office. The, the, the national debt has doubled. So I think that resonates a little bit with people, as does the overtaxation argument. And when they hear that, and while I have links it to the Bank of Canada, and, the you know, interest rates are now at a higher level than they've been in 20 years, it does seem to be of a piece, even though anybody who, who reads the newspaper would know that the, the, the governor of the Bank of Canada operates independently and his mandate is to keep inflation within a band one or two percent less than two percent. Right. I, I mean, it seems to be resonating. I mean, I think I think what the, what the uh, opposition has tapped into is there is this this sort of strange duality now between the economic numbers all being pretty good. And uh, Christian Freeland talked about it today. At the same time, as a lot of Canadians are struggling with rising interest rates, rising mortgage payments, rising credit card debt, uh, you know there is some job security out there. But these are these are tenuous times for a lot of Canadians. At the same time, the data is good, so you have this, this strange two situation. It feels like the Conservatives have tapped into that other half of it. Yeah, I mean, Finance Minister Freeland said, told reporters this morning, "We are very close to the end of this difficult time." and to a return of low, stable inflation and strong, steady growth. Right. It doesn't feel like that. No. And, um, you know, if you're renewing your your five-year mortgage anytime soon, then uh, it's not going to feel like that. This is going to be a major, I wouldn't say an earthquake, but it's going to be a major disruption for many, many people. Canada's got a, a, a culture that does not default on mortgages. I mean, I think the default rate has been very low over the in the post-war period, you know, 1% or 2%, something like that. Um, even during the the great financial uh, crisis of two thousand and eight and nine, Canada wasn't like the states where people were walking away from houses that were were underwater. This might be different. This time might be different. The amount of household debt as uh, as people go to renew those those mortgages, things are going to feel pretty tight for a lot of people. I think, and uh, and that is a real political opportunity for the opposition. I, do you get the sense that that the liberals have, have keyed into that at all? That that looking out over the horizon, they see what's happening on the ground. Well, I Often, think... Governments lose governments in power for a long time begin to lose touch a little bit, as always. Yeah, I mean, when you read that quote from Christy Freeland this morning, and that's not does not jive with what a lot of people's experience. That you know we're very close to the end of this difficult time. We're about to ret- the good times are about to return. You know, if we were that close to it, the Bank of Canada wouldn't have put the interest rates up again. Yeah. Yeah, what about this filibuster on the budget I've been reading about? So, so I, I mean, I guess the Conservatives clearly see they've been reading the, the the polling that's all out there that they are seeing Pierre Polyev and the party is seen to be more to be stronger on the economy than the Liberals are. So while they're sometimes when they're busy, you know, attacking on other things, the economy should be their bread and butter message. Uh, right, you would think for the for the next little while. I mean, that's where they're going to win points. Yeah, I think that. that I mean, it's not uh, not a bad idea to to focus on that and the overspending and what they're claiming is overtaxation. You know, I think Paul Hev's going to stand up in the House. Uh, it's a little bit like King Canute uh, ordering the waves to go back out again. Canute did that, contrary to popular belief, but he did that to show how powerless humans were in the face of nature. <laughs> Paul Hev is essentially powerless to stop this budget going through. Uh, he's going he's to stand up and speak until, I think, tomorrow evening. And then at some point, closure is invoked by the, the government, and then there's a vote on Thursday. And as long as the Liberals have got the support of the NDP, the the budget will pass. So it's a little bit of a futile gesture, but I, but I guess for the Conservatives, now is the time for a futile gesture, and it will at least raise the the issue and get him in the newspapers and, the, and on the the evening broadcasts that uh, the Conservatives are protesting against 
you know, another $60 billion. Right. The, the, the Liberals will claim a lot of that is on clean technology and aimed at matching the Inflation Reduction Act in the States. And, um, you know, without it, we'll fall behind. But but it's still more money going into the economy at a time when there's too much demand, which, again, if there wasn't too much demand, the, the bank wouldn't be raising interest rates. Through those public hearings and the hearing from experts and others, and with your help as the review committee continuing your work, I hope we can treat this with the urgency it deserves and stand proud before our Canadians to saying we are doing everything in our power to protect them. What Mr. Johnson's report is, is nothing more than a whitewash. It has no credibility, and Mr. Johnson demonstrated that today. John Iveson is a political journalist with the National Post, author of Trudeau, the Education of a Prime Minister. Uh, David Johnson, the former Governor General, uh, put out his report a while back, the special rapporteur appointed by the Prime Minister. And yesterday he faced the music, so to speak, and in committee, uh, surrounded by a, a relatively hostile room, at least on the conservative side. Uh, you wrote about it. it. It's It's been kind of, an, I've always liked David Johns. I've interviewed him in the past. He's He seems like a sensible, rational man. Uh, but wow, has he been caught in a firestorm here? And I look at the liberals and think, you could have warned him about, like, you knew what he was stepping into, or did they? What's your impression of that? Well, I think they did. I don't think he did. No. Uh, he <laughs> perhaps should have done. Perhaps shouldn't have taken the job in the first place. Having taken it, I think he would have been wise to bow out after he'd written his first report. And uh, so he's, the first report has landed. He said there's no need for a public inquiry, or there may be a need, but it's not the best route to go. So now there will be public hearings that he will he will lead. I think that was a bad idea on his part. He should probably have, um, have said he would hand over to somebody else due to the perception or the appearance of bias or conflict of interest. Uh, yet he is not doing so. He's going to weather it out. And uh, it did not go well for him yesterday, I don't think. No. I mean, you've been in Ottawa for, for a long time, John. You, you know how, how cliquey it can be. And, and I guess in this case, perhaps David Johnston has lost sight of what that clique might look like to the outside world, because I think he raises interesting points. Everyone he refers to is certainly qualified to do the work. But this sort of small group of people that tend to wind up in these positions, they do all know each other. And if you're not from that part of the world, I mean, Laurentian elite is kind of an overused, overwrought term. But if you're not from that part of the world, you might you mightn't realize how much a lot of these folks know each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think um, well, the conservatives tapped into or tried to tap into this idea that they were friends. Um, you know, there are enough quotes out there from both sides to, to suggest that they were the families were friendly. Johnson downplayed it, saying that for forty years between Trudeau being a boy skiing with his own with his family and him becoming prime minister, they didn't have much contact. Surprisingly, I think what what not many people are picking up on is the fact that they would have had they would have known each other intimately as prime minister and governor general. Right. I mean, it was essentially his boss. You know, there is some prospect or some sense among some people this in itself is a conflict of interest that that's helping him to. To do this job was, um, you know, you had somebody who was, you know, probably friendly with, uh, even even di- disregarding the, the the long track record of being family friends. But yeah, I mean, they're way too close. Um, Sheila Block, his his chief uh, senior counsel, is a long time lifelong liberal donor. It looks like he asked if if um, a retired Supreme Court justice Frank Yacobucci. Uh, if he was in a conflict of interest situation, he was asked yesterday, how long have you known Yakabuchi? Well, we were young lawyers together when I was 25. You know, it's all very, very cozy. It lends 
credence to the, to the more outlandish claims that that he's a, a car carrying liberal or a Chinese agent or whatever else. It's just doesn't pass the smell test. He shouldn't have taken the job in the first place. I, I wrote a column at the time, was saying, look, if we can trust anybody, it's this guy. Yeah. He literally wrote the book on trust. So he, he penned a book called Trust and said, if you know, if, if we lose our sense of trust, then what's the point of getting up, getting up in the morning? And I perhaps foolishly said, look, let's trust this guy. Uh, he'll do the right thing. He's an honourable man. And and I don't think he's done the right thing. I think that continuing on down this road, particularly after the House of Commons voted that he should step aside and that there should be a public inquiry. I mean, that he's trying to restore trust in democracy. That's his stated goal. And yet, what could undermine democracy more than ignoring the will of the House of Commons, the people's representatives? Yeah, maybe hiring uh, a public relations firm to help you out after you've released right. your first report is it even. I mean, this, these like, yeah, it's just when it should be totally obvious that this is not good for the Canadian democracy. What's your sense of why he didn't? What's going on behind the scenes that would convince him not to step away? Because clearly, watching him yesterday, he's he, he's you know he's convinced of his own convictions, and that's fine. But he, he, someone must be talking to him about staying on, and it must be the government, no? Yeah, I, to be honest, I have no real insight into that. I think mm. um, he's clearly a fighter. You know, he looked defiant almost. You know, he tried to strike a kind of Churchillian pose. The allegations are false, so therefore I will not bow to them. These are the allegations that he's part of a liberal clique and that it's that it's a setup. Uh, you know, he's doing just in a favour and et cetera, et cetera. And I think because they're trying to push him, he just won't be pushed. Yeah. I mean, he didn't get to where he got by by, by, by being a pushover, right? No doubt. Right. right. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess there there is no chance here because I think I think watching him yesterday, you, you just know that the rest of this process, these public hearings, I mean, it's all going to be a disaster. You, you can tell, right? You can tell from the outset. Well, I think um, there are, the, the, the findings are already tainted. You know, his, his explanations you know, it would be time consuming. It would be expensive to do a public inquiry. Uh, it couldn't be done out in the open because of the nature of confidential, um, the, the classified information that we'd be dealing with. And I don't particularly buy all of that. I certainly, and the other side of it is that the, the public hearings he is going to hold, he's talking about getting the diaspora communities on the in some kind of forum, get them in a room and talk about China or India or wherever they come from. I don't think that's going to be an overwhelming success. I can't imagine anybody from China who's got family at home is going to stand stand up in public and, and criticize the People's Republic of China. So I don't hold out a huge amount of hope for what comes next. Michael Chong didn't. He asked him a question yesterday and said, you know, we've produced a thousand pages of parliamentary findings over five different reports from four different community, uh, four different committees. We've heard, you know, dozens and dozens of witnesses and we've still got nowhere because the government won't answer questions. And you won't either. And uh, and I think Chong's right on that. Yeah. I, and at this point, it doesn't look like it looks like we've reached a stalemate. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is we end up talking politics and not about the very real problem of foreign interference in our political system. John Iveson, as always, thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. All the best. Well, the game of life just got a little trickier for a lot of Canadians today. The Bank of Canada ended a brief pause and resumed raising raising its benchmark interest rate. The banks, of course, followed suit quickly with their lending rates. So, of course, if you have a mortgage that's coming up for renewal, 
all that stuff. Everything got more expensive today thanks to this. The central bank increased its rate by 25 basis points to 4.75%. Now, traditionally, historically, that's not that high. But it's the highest it's been since 2001. Our era of easy borrowing and cheap money seems to be clearly over, and we're all going to uh, pay the consequences, it seems. They want to counter stubborn inflation and the stronger-than-expected Canadian economy. The accumulation of data has all generally pointed in the same direction, um, that uh, higher interest rates have yet to cool the economy down enough to restore price stability. That's Royce Mendez of Desjardins Group. Uh, the finance minister, Christia Freeland, though, is trying to tamp down fears. We talked about it with John Iveson in the last half hour, but how she seemed to be trying to sell a message that just isn't going to land. But she's trying to tamp down fears about the state of the economy broadly. I do want to point to, from my perspective, the core strength and the resilience of the Canadian economy. And that is the extremely important jobs market. The fact that we have 900,000 more jobs than we had before COVID first hit is so important. You know, she's not exactly wrong, but it's hard to get excited about uh, jobs numbers and so on when you're struggling to pay your mortgage and groceries are too expensive and et cetera, et cetera. All your bills are adding up. And that is the reality for a growing number of Canadians these days, at least according to a new report from Equifax Canada. It says credit demand was high in the first quarter of this year. Well, the mortgage market saw a significant slowdown for obvious reasons as mortgage rates continue to climb. Missed payments on non-mortgage debts debts also rose. Missed payments on non-mortgage debts. Uh, So in other words, people are putting aside money to pay for their mortgages as those prices go up. 175,000 more consumers in this country missed payments on at least one product in the first quarter of 2023. That is up nearly 20% from a year earlier. The numbers don't lie. People are struggling and they're borrowing to stay above water. Just how bad is this problem? Rebecca Oakes is Vice President of Advanced Analytics at Equifax Canada. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you for having me. So here we are. We're we're seeing another interest rate hike today. And already, according to a report uh, that you put out earlier this week, we're all Canadians are already starting to struggle uh, with with debt. How is that manifesting itself in your research? Well, when we look across uh, Canada in terms of what's happening on the debt side of things, there's kind of a couple of things going on. So first of all, when we look at balances, um, probably unsurprisingly, when we look at mortgage balance, that's actually uh, slowed down in terms of growth just because those interest rates have started to um, have an impact on the housing market. So new mortgages are really slowing down now. When we look at non-mortgage debts, on the other hand, we've been seeing that increasing through 2022. And when we look at the first quarter, that, is, that has come down a little bit, but that's really seasonal. So normally we expect quite a large drop in the first quarter when we look at consumer debt. Um, and actually, it's a bit different this time. So when we are looking at Q1, we're seeing credit card balances continue to increase. You know, normally post the holiday period, people start paying off those balances a little bit more rather than increasing. So it's definitely manifesting itself in higher spending. We're seeing debt levels start to rise. When we look at some of the less good news in terms of things like mispayments, we are seeing mispayments start to rise as well. Um, now, it's not a big shock factor like you might see in some other kind of downturn periods. It's much more of a gradual increase. But some of that is going to be linked to that high inflation, high cost of living, 
the rise in interest rates does add pressure as well for, for consumers that have debt because monthly payments can go up. We could start perhaps with, with what's driving this broadly. And what I found interesting is that consumer spending was up significantly in the first quarter. So you get the sense that people are, are going into debt now thinking that they're gonna it's gonna be just gonna be more expensive later, which isn't exactly the great way to a great way to approach it. But what when you look at why uh credit card debt is suddenly rising, what are some of the factors you think are that are at play? I mean, I think it's important to, to kind of call out that it, it has been increasing for some time. So it kind of started back end of 2021. Now, some of that was pent up demand. You know, when all of us kind of started to come out of the the the, the lockdowns and the pandemic, people were going back and they wanted to go on vacation and they wanted to go out to restaurants. So there was increased spending because of that that demand. Now, some of that demand is really what's led to some of the inflation challenges we now have, because obviously that's really supply and demand that, that, that kind of leads to uh, inflation. So it has been high for quite a while. Some of that is going to be just things cost more. So, you know, if you go and need to buy a new washing machine and you need to put that on your credit card, it might cost more than it did two, three years ago. Um, so some of it's going to be inflation. You know, some of it we believe in pockets of the population is because actually things are costing more and they don't have the money to pay for those things. And, and therefore, there is some additional reliance on using credit just to get by. You know, I mean, if you look at things like food costs, for example, you know, it's scary in terms of the the inflation on, on on something as basic as food that we're seeing. And if you're if you're on lower income and kind of near near to kind of the margins, you haven't got as much flexibility to be able to cope with those rising costs. One stat that stood out for me was that consumers are spending was it twenty one point five percent more each month on their credit cards compared with pre pandemic levels. That was something you found on average, right? Yeah, when we look at it overall, it's I think it equates to around four hundred dollars more each month on average that someone's someone's put on a credit card. Now again, some of that is going to be consumers that are completely fine right now and they can pay their balances in full. Um, and some of it will be consumers where they're what we call revolving a balance, so they don't pay that credit card balance off in full each month. It's that revolving population where we're seeing a little bit more growth than the other side. Um, so that isn't great news either. And, and what about new credit customers? Because I was trying to figure out, is that customers taking on new credit cards? Is that is that people finding new lines of credit to try to stay afloat? Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, when we look at Q1, in terms of the number of people in Canada who are what we call credit active, you know, a consumer that is using credit on a regular basis, um, we had 1 million more consumers than 12 months ago. Now, that's quite a big number. Now, some of that is coming from just the population growth we have in Canada. There are more people entering the country, but you know, the government has quite high immigration targets. So some of it is there's just more people coming in and therefore they're using credit a lot more. And and, and you know, once they arrive here, they they need access to things like credit cards. So we're going to see an uptick in terms of that. But when we look at the other side, which is consumers that are already here in Canada, we're seeing growth in that as well. So there's around 200,000 more than, say, pre-pandemic that we're getting in terms of new credit active people coming through. So, you know, there's kind of two things leading to, you know, this this increase in demand for credit. And when we look at what the impact of that could be, I mean, I, I gather one of the things that was interesting about this is that uh, non-mortgage holders seem to be driving a lot of this demand a while back. And now mortgage holders are also starting to catch up. I mean, it's hard to draw conclusions with one report, you know, broad conclusions, but it feels like you're seeing more and more people sort of struggling to tread water when it comes to staying above above the water level financially. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, there is some good news again, which is during COVID and the pandemic, 
there actually were a lot of government support programs. There was lender support programs, things like deferral programs that were offered. And we actually saw a huge shift in terms of credit usage during the pandemic. We saw right. you know, big drops in balances and people were paying more and people were getting themselves out of difficulties, which was great. And we saw savings increasing as well, which is really important because that's buffer for when there's difficult times ahead. So that's the good news. The less good news right now is that it's not for everybody. Not everyone's in the same position. And so while you've got pockets of the, you know, or, or the vast majority of the population, actually, that maybe is in a better position to weather this storm, there's definitely pockets of the population who are maybe lower income, things like that, that actually they don't have that ability. So back end of last year, we definitely saw on the non-mortgage consumers, the people without a home, we saw, you know, missed payments starting to rise with the high cost of living. Um, what we're seeing in Q1 now is that shifting towards consumers with a mortgage. So we're seeing delinquency levels growing. We're seeing insolvency levels growing as well for that population. Now, they're still below pre-pandemic because, again, we're starting from a good position, but they're definitely on the rise. So there is a shift happening towards more what we would traditionally think would be low-risk individuals. Rebecca Oakes is Vice President of Advanced Analytics at Equifax Canada. We're talking about, uh, well, we're talking about the interest rate hike again today. Caught a few people off guard. Uh, there was a bit of a 50-50 split as to whether it would happen today or maybe a little bit later in the year. So up to 4.75% for the Bank of Canada. And um, uh, Rebecca's just done some work on the credit snapshot of the country uh, for quarter Q1 uh, in Canada. And it has some both some positives and, and, and some alarm bells as well in there. Uh, there were some regional differences that aren't that surprising in there. If you look at housing costs, which is both Ontario and British Columbia seem to be up near the top when it came to people taking on new debt. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're also seeing maybe mispayments as well for some of those regions. You know, when you look at some of those areas with those hot housing markets and, you know, they have higher mortgages typically and things like that. You know, that's where we are seeing a little bit more growth in terms of the debt levels. And that potentially is because they are needing to rely on credit a little bit more because perhaps, you know, you know, their monthly income has been eaten away by some of their mortgage and rental payments. When we look at this latest increase, I mean, it's not a big jump, 25 basis points. It's the highest, though, interest rates have been since 2001, although traditionally not super, super high. But as mortgages come up for renewal now, and it looks like this is going to be stickier than perhaps people might have hoped, uh, what, when you look forward, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but when you look forward, do you see this, these trends continuing? I mean, I think when we look at something like the mispayment side, our forecast for the rest of 2023 is that we do expect to see a gradual increase in mispayments. We expect to see that more coming from mortgage holders, because as you point out, as they come up for renewal, there is that risk that actually the payment, there might be a payment shock for those individuals, and that might push them over the edge. At the very least, it will hopefully do what I think the Bank of Canada is trying to achieve, which is, you know, if you're paying more uh, on your mortgage, then you have less money available for spending elsewhere. And so, you know, again, with inflation, it's really about an imbalance in supply and demand. So if you have demand start to reduce, then that's when prices come down. So it's not great for the individuals renewing at a higher level, but it might have that kind of effect that the bank account is trying trying to achieve through that period. So we definitely expect to see see that happening. While inflation stays high as well, on the non-mortgage side, so consumers that don't have a mortgage, it's high cost of living on an ongoing basis, sustained period of time. There will be more and more individuals, unless their income's keeping up with that increase, you know, they're going to be finding it really difficult. And so we might see more mispayments come through on that as well. But we do expect it to be gradual, a gradual increase as opposed to a, you know, a shock factor. 
Right. It's sort of a slow moving situation. I guess as more and more people, you're right, people built, built up a fair amount of some buffer during, during the pandemic. And, and that buffer, I gather, is being eaten away for some, especially with rents so high and so on. It feels like expenses have gone up a lot more than salaries have. When you look at, at where this could go, I mean, one of the things I found interesting looking at that last report is that consumers are in a bit of a bind because inflation has become something that we expect. So you think this washing machine that I need now or is going to cost more if I don't buy it now. And so therefore are taking on more debt in anticipation of inflation. I suppose that's that's the narrative that needs to be changed, right? That's what the Bank of Canada is attempting to do. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, it's also difficult because, again, it's not an even position that everybody's in. I mean, you know, there always are going to be differences. But while you have a lot of consumers that, you know, have had, I mean, there has been some quite significant increases in income for parts of the population as well. You know, we, we've had a really strong job market. Employment has been really high. So, you know, while you've got that going on and, and there's individuals with built up savings, yes, things cost more, but, you know, they're coping really well. Their mortgage isn't going to renew for another three years. Those individuals, they can still afford to pay the prices until there's a tipping point where there's more individuals that potentially can't afford to spend as much and they start reducing the spending. Inflation's still going to be there. Now, having said that, when we come to the June numbers, if you remember, you know, when we look at inflation, typically, they get reported as an annual change. And mm-hmm. 12 months ago, we had those massive gas- gasoline prices. So um, June last year was a big jump up. So when you get the June numbers, it's going to look a lot better, I think, right. because you're going to have a year on year, oh, year, year com- compared to peak, right? Of course. Um, but but again, you know, when you look at kind of more of a rolling three-month period, start of the year, we were down to 2%. But, you know, April, it's picked back up again. And, you know, again, when you've got things like strong immigration, which is fantastic for the economy, there's more demand. So it's you know it's kind of that, that that real challenge. I think it's going to be quite sticky this inflation. I, I know you're not a, a financial counselor per se, but I suppose the advice to everyone out there is obviously, I mean, watch out with the debt thing. I mean, as we see people slip a bit, and as uh, non-payment goes up, I mean, clearly that's the worst place to be. Yeah, and also just prepare yourselves. I mean, particularly if you have a mortgage right now. Right. I suppose even in the hallways where people uh, study this stuff closely, everyone still talks about it the same way. It's still water cooler chat wherever anyone is. Uh, absolutely absolutely you know my mortgage is up for renewal next year <laughs> and yeah. it's a concern so it's fine so, so it's fine so. yeah from 1.7 percent, i'm sure it's not not going to be that uh anytime soon rebecca oaks thank you so much thank you so much well let's head back to ottawa and revisit that committee appearance yesterday by the former governor general now special rapporteur on foreign interference david johnston uh if they're again Here's what some of the commentary about it had to say today. Um, this was Althea Raj in the Toronto Star. If there are any doubts, MPs are more concerned with scoring partisan points than they are about addressing the country's vulnerability to foreign influence. They were laid to rest this week. But Johnston did himself no favours either. His answers helped further the case for a public inquiry and raised more concerns that he is ill-suited to take on a more expansive role. If you need a reminder about what happened here, he was appointed by the Prime Minister to look into these allegations of foreign interference by Beijing in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. He produced his first report about a month ago in which he recommended no public inquiry. He said, didn't need one, too complicated, too much information behind closed doors. Uh, What I'll do instead is I'll have some hearings and we'll have public hearings and we'll invite 
people from you know different expertise, different diaspora communities to come and tell us what the problem is, and we'll go from there. Well, that's landed like you know landed with a thud. Needless to say, people are not impressed with his um, with both his conclusions and some of the work that he did in his report, which seemed to let off the Liberal government awfully easily for things that it claimed it just didn't know. And people are wondering how they couldn't have known some of these things were taking place, considering just what a flood of warnings was coming at them about how Beijing had really ramped up its efforts, allegedly, uh, to interfere in 2019 and in 2021 to sort of move out candidates it didn't like, specifically people who were very vocal about their opposition to some of what Beijing is up to, specifically on human rights. And that includes my next guest. Born in Hong Kong, Jenny Kwan is the member of parliament, the NDP member of parliament for Vancouver East. She's been a long-time outspoken critic of uh, the regime in Beijing, specifically on human rights. So this issue is not only political, but personal for her. And she was in the room. She was at committee yesterday to question David Johnston about his report. Uh, and she specifically focused on a on a CSIS memo that had been pre- prepared for the Prime Minister a year before the 2019 federal election, warning that Chinese agents were assisting chosen candidates running for office, a draft that was then revised quite significantly before it went to the PM. Here's the exchange. My question was, did Mr. Johnson look into who changed that memo and why it was changed? Madam Chair, again, I must be conscious of the class, but information, the memo that appeared in Global News... Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt for a second here, uh, Madam Chair. It's a yes or no question. Did Mr. Johnson look into who changed it? Yes or no? The answer to that question is the memo that was referred to in the Global News report was an early draft that had certain statements. That draft... Uh, was not circulated further. There was a final draft that completed to quite a different conclusion. And that was just one of many many exchanges that, you know, the, the Conservatives were, were pretty intent on attacking uh, David Johnson's credibility and his links to to the Prime Minister. Uh, the NDP really went after some of the proposals, some of what was contained within the report itself as well. Uh, but they all they're all united on one thing. They'd like to see a public inquiry. And Jenny Kwan uh, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me. I, I mean, I watched the whole thing. So, so take me inside that room because I've sat through committee hearings in the past, and that one felt the, the atmosphere felt odd, even from for a viewer watching it on their phone. Yeah, so definitely there was a lot of uh, I think intensity uh, in the room. There's a lot of interest, of course, on the topic. As we gather, many of us were looking forward to having this conversation with Mr. David Johnston. But uh, as the situation unfolded, as the meeting unfolded, uh, I'm afraid that we were left with more questions than we started with. The other thing, of course, too, is that with the intensity that's going on, we know that the Conservatives is really want to go after, in some ways, a bit of a personality question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, the issue around conflict. And it, it makes it very personal from that perspective. But from where we stand for the NDP, we want to actually get at the issue. There's definitely, I think, a perception of conflict going on. And the NDP moved a motion in the House uh, to say that Mr. Johnston uh, does not have the confidence uh, of uh, the House of Commons parliamentarians and that he should actually, in fact, step down. And that motion did pass. So 
So from that perspective, we really want to get at the heart of the issue and, of course, ultimately get the government to do the right thing, get the prime minister to do the right thing, and that is to have a public inquiry into this whole situation. It was interesting, his answer, because uh, Johnston uh, has always made it quite clear that he's highly respectful of the will of Parliament. And yet yesterday, when it was pointed out to him numerous times that the will of Parliament in this case, I mean, he was appointed in his in fairness, he was appointed by the prime minister. But but you you and others pointed out correctly that uh, that he didn't have the confidence of Parliament. His answers were interesting, though, because, you know, he's a smart man, but he couldn't find himself out of that one. No, it is um, very contradictory. You can't respect parliamentarians and the House of Commons at the same time when the parliament made it very clear to say that this whole process was wrong from the beginning, that this uh, special rapporteur to which Mr. Johnston was appointed was the wrong process. As things unfolded, there were more and more concerns about the perception of conflict, not just for himself. We now learn, of course, that the perception of conflict also exists with Ms. Brock, who is a key member of his team. And, and so the House of Commons said very clearly that Mr. Johnston needs to go. He needs to actually not carry on with this work. And we need to make sure that the proper process is, is in place. And that is a independent public inquiry. And that the commissioner needs to be someone that is agreed to by all official parties. Uh, and that the terms of reference is also agreed to by all official parties. And in that way, then we can have the confidence of the commissioner's work and what they find. Right. And precisely because the work is highly confidential and national security is involved, and so much of the information may not be able to be disclosed to the Canadian public. And so for that reason, we actually need someone that we all have faith and trust in in undertaking this work. And I'm sorry to say, Mr. Johnston is not it. And so it's contradictory for him to say we respect the House of Commons, but I'm not going to listen to you. I'm just going to carry on business as usual, even though you have already told me very explicitly that you have no faith and confidence in me in doing this work. Right. I have trouble figuring out who that person, that magical person who everyone would have confidence in is these days. But there must be someone out there that people could more or less agree upon. I, I know that CSIS came to see you. I, mean, I know this is now their writ, right? They're meant to inform MPs when, in fact, they have any information that they could be the targets of a foreign country. Uh, what can you say about what was shared and just how much of a surprise? Because I gather a lot of what was shared with you is stuff that you weren't aware of. Well, in light of the situation and with more and more uh, leaked documents or leaked uh, information coming out of the foreign interference with the Chinese Communist Party, you can't help but to wonder who else had been targeted. Uh, and of course, when I received the call from CSIS and had the briefing with them, while I suspect that I might be a target, but to be told they said you have been for some time and that you are what they say, quote unquote, evergreen candidate for this. You know, that kind of just uh, is, is disturbing and troubling, uh, to say the least. And so, so here I am. I am being targeted. I have been for some time and I will be, it sounds to me, an evergreen candidate, meaning that I will forever be a target. And so this is what we're faced with today. Exactly. And when one looks at some of what's 
been going on around this. I, I mean, I think one of the one of the issues at hand here is that what David Johnson seems to have said is that uh, you know I recognize that this is an issue. I recognize that this is a problem, and we're going to dig into this to try to figure out how to find it. And what you're saying is we already know what the problem is. Now let's figure out how to tackle it. And who knew what, when, and what did they do about it? And I think that's where the balance is starting to shift a bit. You have two these two narratives going on, and it's hard. And then it's getting political at the same time. How do we fix this? Do you think? I guess a public inquiry right? Yeah, a public inquiry, in my view, is absolutely essential. We need to have that inquiry. We need to rebuild the trust and confidence, not just for parliamentarians, but in the hearts and minds of Canadians. If you can imagine myself as a member of parliament who could be, who, who has been targeted, is, is being targeted and will forever be targeted, what does that mean for everyday Canadians? For them, who do they turn to? And these are re- very real uh, situations that are going on out there. And so David Johnston, in coming to committee, I'm sorry to say his appearance raised more questions than uh, he had answered. And more than ever, we need this public inquiry to restore confidence. We need to know who knew what, when, and uh, and what did the government do about it. Uh, we know this exists, and we also, of course, do need to look at how to address this in a proper way going forward. The other thing that I should note uh, in the appearance with Mr. Johnston, I thought it was just such a bizarre contradiction. He actually said at the committee that related to Hang Dong uh, on, on, on the allegations around him, he told the committee he actually did not talk to Hang Dong. But yet in the report, he actually said on the question around these irregularities with the nomination, he said that he didn't know anything about these irregularities. Well, how did Mr. Johnston know that if he never talked to him? I mean, that's a contradiction right there. And it's so blatant. Uh, There were other contradictions as well, which is disturbing, to say the least. In the case with uh, uh, MP Aaron O'Toole, Mm -hmm. uh, we've now learned that he's also been targeted. He gave a lot more information than I'm able to, to do so. And then Mr. Johnson said, well, you know, I didn't have that information. Well, he's the guy who was supposed to, at the time, he was supposed to, the guy who looked into all of this. How is it possible that Mr. O'Toole got this information and the special rapporteur who's looking into this whole situation did not get that information? Makes you wonder what other information did he not see? Uh, And so how can we trust this process? This process does not work uh, and it does not have the confidence of Parliament and it does not, I think, have the confidence of many Canadians. So we need to press a reset. We need the Prime Minister to do the right thing and to make sure that there is a proper uh, independent public inquiry. Uh, this has been, you know, the billion dollar question since the outset. If you look at this, you know what 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 kind of um, allegations of interference were going on. I think any of us who've spent time in China over the years understand what WeChat is, understand how the diaspora is pressured, uh, how threats against family back home are used. I think we we know what the toolkit looks like, Beijing's toolkit. I think the Liberal, the government knew what their toolkit looked like too. So the billion-dollar question all along has been, did the Liberal government know that this was happening and decided just to ignore it or that it couldn't be that bad because they didn't want to offend Beijing for any number of reasons? Or was or was was there is it just incompetence? Were they just not paying attention? Because that's kind of the those are the two, only two options you're left with, right? 
Uh, or it could be a combination of all of uh, all sure. of the above, right? Uh, and which is why we need that independent public inquiry to look in, in all these matters. Because what Mr. Johnston has done in tabling that report, uh, and, and I've read that report over and over again, and right. the common refrain over and over again is to say that no uh, recommendations were made uh, and so none were ignored. That seems to be the, right. the the you know the genesis of his conclusion. So therefore, the government is okay. You know, the government is not at fault, with exception that there are a lot of missing pieces that Mr. Johnston was not able to answer, uh, and uh, and I don't think any of that restores confidence at all. Uh, the other thing that too that Mr. Johnston seems to uh, not be able to see he has this giant blind spot with the issue of a perception of conflict. How could it be? And it seems to me that he did not, he did not answer my question when I asked him if he actually checked with his team, Ms. Brock, uh, more particularly, that whether or not she's donated to the Liberal Party and that attended a recent fundraiser with the Prime Minister. He didn't answer that question. He didn't even answer the question on what he thinks uh, perception of conflict is. I, I, you know, I'm not even sure at this point if he knows what the perception of conflict is and how damaging it is to this work. And so, you know, from that perspective, we absolutely need to have a reset. Mr. Johnston does not have the confidence of the House of Commons. He cannot carry on with this work because even as he carries on, the work is really in many ways nullified because people cannot trust the work that he is doing. Right. And, and you seem to say that part of that is not just this this idea of this conflict, which people can have their own opinions on, but but the quality of his work, too, which is, you know, which which it, it was was honestly a, a bit disappointing. And for you, I mean, here you are in this situation as a sitting member of parliament. And um, I mean, truth be told, you, you can't go back to Hong Kong or you can't go, you know, go check out the Bund in Shanghai. That must be a strange situation. Yeah, it is a very sad situation for me to see this whole situation unfold. Hong Kong uh, is my birthplace, mm-hmm. is, is where I was born. China is my ancestors' birthplace. And uh, I, you know, I've had this uh, dream really in many ways to be able to bring my children back to my own birthplace to show them where I came from and where their grandparents came from in China. But this is never going to happen because I I don't think that I can travel to Hong Kong or to uh, China without risking my safety. Look at what happened to the two Michaels. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to become a Michael and disappear into the void. And so this is a real situation for those of us who are being targeted now that I know I'm being targeted. And so this is what we're confronted with. So for us to deal with this issue, uh, it is very serious. Uh, And they are, I'm very cognizant of the fact that there are many Canadians, Chinese Canadians, who have family members in Hong Kong or in China who are at risk. Uh, And that fear for them is very real. That's why we need to do this work and take it seriously. Uh, And the only way to ensure that we have faith and confidence in this work is, in fact, through a public inquiry. And you're absolutely right. It's not just the question of the perception of conflict with Mr. Johnston, but it is also the quality of his work. The work does not stand up. You know, in the report, there's a a site, uh, he cites the fact that there was this memo related to uh, foreign interference to which the prime minister had review. Uh, But then the final version that went to him is substantively different from the one that was leaked uh, into, uh, into the public and with the media. 
And so I asked him a very basic question. Why, who changed that and why did it get changed? He wasn't able to answer that question at all. And so I, you know, the, the work just is not there. And I, I'm sorry, it does not stand up to the kind of scrutiny that needs to be in place for uh, the level of seriousness of what we're faced with. Uh, uh, seriousness, do you, uh, you know well. Jenny Kwan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Let's go from low-tech board games to high-tech at Apple's big reveal this month. CEO Tim Cook unveiled the $3,500 U.S. Vision Pro headset. Here, have a listen. Introducing Apple Vision Pro. The era of spatial computing is here. When you put on Apple Vision Pro, you see your world and everything in it. Your favorite apps live right in front of you. But now, they're in your space. This is Vision OS, Apple's first ever spatial operating system. It's familiar, yet groundbreaking. You navigate with your eyes. Simply tap to select, flick to scroll, and use your voice to dictate. Wow. I mean, it sounds pretty high-tech, doesn't it? We'll have to take um, – we, we haven't really seen much of them yet. I've been reading some articles about them. I don't know how many people have actually got to use them. You do have to wear them, by the way. Uh, they're being called Apple's biggest product launch, launch in more than a decade, perhaps since the iPhone. It is, in fact, a pair of goggles, and it's their entry into what they call spatial computing, what that exactly means. How good is this? How much buzz is there around this? Don't don't leave it to me. I don't know. Micah Gerbo does, though, and he's the host of Get Connected and the App Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mike, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. So, as always, lots of hype around anything Apple and new, and I've been sort of drifting through all the different articles written about it since to figure out what exactly is going on. So, what is this thing, and what does it do? Yeah, it's uh, Apple's foray into mixed reality glasses, uh, but in essence, it's a very powerful computer. It's uh, got one of their uh, Apple M2 processors in it, also a new one they call the R1 chip uh, as well. Uh, But essentially, uh, it uh, can do augmented reality. You can actually see through uh, the uh, the lens there. In front, it's got five different sensors, 12 different cameras as well. Uh, So you can actually project all your apps, uh, even your computer screens, uh, if you've... uh, got it hooked up to a Mac. Uh, and if you want to go virtual reality, you can do that uh, as well. Uh, it's got uh, two 4K, uh, basically, um, a little LCD panels uh, right in it. So the the resolution is fantastic. It's probably the best uh, pair of glasses, uh, augmented reality glasses out in the market today. Right. And, um, and certainly, I mean, they are goggles. You have to wear them, though, right? Is, is that uh, – I mean, this has been tried and, and I, I guess hasn't picked up as much steam as maybe we might have expected. But uh, this is meant to be a bit of a game changer uh, by Apple just because of how powerful and how good they are. But you still have to actually physically put them on, right? You do. That's, that's the thing. But, uh, you know, they've uh, you know, obviously worked hard to make them uh, a lot more comfortable and wearable uh, as well. I've tried a number of different uh, types of uh, AR, VR glasses on before. I'm using the, uh, the MetaQuest uh, goggles from, uh, you know, Facebook, and, you know, they're fantastic. Uh, but these uh, are thinner. Uh, they've made them lighter as well. They've taken the battery off the headset itself. It's actually uh, uh, attached. Uh, you wear it in your pocket uh, or clip it to uh, a belt. Um, but it's, it's, it is a, a game-changing 
technology. I, I think it's going to uh, really put all the competitors, uh, uh, you know, up to, you know, to try to keep up to this. So it's still uh, a ways away. You know, I think it's another year before, uh, I think 2024 before we'll actually, you know, be able to get our hands uh, on it. But, you know, as you know, with these things too, the price will come down, uh, you know, in the coming years as well. Right. Because right now, um, as I mentioned earlier, it is, I mean, it is pretty hefty. Although, as you point out, there's a lot going on in those glasses for your $3,500. For You know, that's the price point right now. But there's a lot going on in those glasses for $3,500 US. They really are. I mean, it's essentially, you know, a high definition computer screen. You could use that as your monitors for your Macintosh. Uh, you can watch immersive videos. Uh, you can actually record immersive videos as well because of all the cameras built into it uh, uh, too. So, you know, I've talked to a few of my journalist friends who actually got to try them on down in Cupertino, and they said it just blew them away how good they, they really were and how comfortable they were uh, as well. Yeah, a- Apple doesn't often uh, bring these things out without uh, making pretty sure that they're, uh, that they're ready to go. And as you mentioned, compatible with other Apple products. I mean, it's essentially like having a giant monitor and much more uh, on your eyes. You could see this stuff becoming incredibly popular sooner or later, right? As soon as the price point works. But uh, uh, what do you think the key to success is then for the for this particular iteration of the product? Well, you know, obviously, uh, you know, $3,500 US price point, you know, that's almost $5,000 Canadian. So <laughs> yeah, I don't think that. everyone's going to be running down to the Apple store uh, right right away. But, uh, you know, I, I see developers getting their hands on these things, uh, you know, because they want to be able to develop the, the next generation of uh, AR, VR apps. I think a lot of businesses would look at uh, this uh, as well to do remote diagnostics and, and, and conferencing. Um, you know, they, you know, the price points up there for businesses to perhaps uh, afford, but I, I think for them to be mainstream, it's going to have to, you know, get under $2,000. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that might be a few years uh, away right now. But, you know, from everything I've heard from my friends who have actually tried these things on, uh, they are truly amazing as far as the technology. How do you get away from the the isolation aspect of it again? Because I always feel like anytime I've tried them on, you, you, it is very much a, a one person experience as opposed to a communal experience. And, and I guess that's just because I'm old. But but it is a bit it is a bit isolating. So you know, in an office environment or in a home environment, it feels like I suppose we do that with our devices already, right? We all look at our own devices at home these days. But it feels like an experience that that is limited to one person at a time, and that can be and that can be a challenge. Yeah, from from what I understand, though, uh, they're really trying to, to to make them personal. Uh, you can actually create your own personal avatar with them as well uh, by you know pointing the goggles uh, at you. From what I understand, uh, it it creates an amazing uh, avatar and and uh, imagery of your your face. So if you're uh, you know conferencing, video conferencing, FaceTiming with uh, someone, you will actually see their their face in in real time. It's it's an avatar, but you know, on the other end, you know, as they're talking, it's uh, actually causing the avatar to, you know, uh, move the eyes, the lips, you know, whatever way they're, they're looking uh, as well. And when you're wearing them, too, uh, you can actually see the person's eyes, uh, you know, and so when they're, they're looking out at you. Uh, if they do go into like a virtual reality mode, you know, the lenses cloud over to let you know, you know, people outside that you are kind of immersed in, in something. So they're really trying to kind of make it a, a, a personal computing device.
Right. I mean, I mean, I guess that I was reading The Atlantic had sort of the most interesting of, of uh, titles that said the age of goggles has arrived, but why? And, and and I think, but that's always been how these technologies start, right? Everyone thinks, well, why would you need that? And then, of course, once they perfect it and the price point is right, people see the benefit in it. You tr- you'd have to try them on, I would think. I think so. You know, I, I've got those MetaQuest um, uh, VR goggles. Right. Uh, and a few people at work have them as well. And, you know, during... Uh, you know, the, the lockdown, we were actually using them for our um, our, our, our meetings, uh, our, our video conferencing meetings. Uh, and it was amazing because you could actually uh, tie your computer in. So you could be sitting at a virtual desk. You could see uh, the keyboard from your laptop or your desktop computer in front of you. Uh, and then you could have like giant virtual monitors as well. There was whiteboards. You could see the other uh, people in the, the, the little meeting room as well, their, their avatars. It, it just made like a, you know, a Zoom or a Teams meeting so much more immersive. And I could actually spend a lot more time, you know, interfacing, uh, you know, with the people uh, virtually. So I think Apple, what they're trying to do is, you know, now take that to the next level to make it uh, photorealistic as well. Right. One thing that really does stand out about them, and this is sort of typical of all Apple products, is they look, they do look pretty wild. <laughs> they do look great, uh, you know, sort of out of this world in many ways, but they really did obviously spend a lot of time on the design element of them as well. Yeah, and what's interesting as well is, um, you know, for people that have glasses, uh, it looks like you can actually get prescription lenses for them that magnetically click right into the uh, the eyepieces. So uh, you're not trying to fit these these goggles over existing glasses. You know, I have to do that with my, uh, my MetaQuest uh, uh, goggles. And it's kind of a, a pain sometimes. It's not like a very comfortable fit. So Apple has obviously seen that, you know, that is an issue and they're going to go this different route uh, with, uh, with the goggles. Right. But still a ways off, though, right? This was sort of a tease as to what may be on its way. We're still at least a year away from seeing them for sale. And even then, this is sort of iteration number one. Think, you know, think the first iPod, in other words, sort of. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, the first people that are going to get them, obviously Apple fans, early adopters, uh, you know, developers, uh, maybe businesses as well that, you know, there might be uh, uh, an application for it. But I think for regular consumers, um, probably at least three or four years away before I think it hits kind of that magic price point that would make it uh, affordable and uh, appealing to a, a, a wider uh, audience. But, you know, in, in that time, you know, they're already making partnerships with a lot of content uh, creators. You know, they had Disney uh, Bob Iger came up uh, on the stage there and said they're committed to making content uh, as well uh, for, uh, you know, the new uh, Apple Vision Pro. So, you know, it, it's going to be a very um, full ecosystem once it really starts rolling. Yeah. Micah Gerbo is with us this half hour, host of Get Connected and the App Show on Chorus Radio. We're talking about uh, new tech stuff, including Apple's Vision Pro, the, those goggles they released this week. You may have seen articles about them, sort of the, the, tech, uh, the tech reporter's dream to get their hands on a pair. Uh, actually wearing them, apparently you're brought into a little room. It's all very, it's all very uh, top secret. Uh, Mike, Mike, there's been other products. I mean, these uh, lots of, I was reading lots of different tech reporters. You were mentioning it too, who've tried sort of different incarnations of these kinds of products over the past little while uh, we've heard a lot about them of course the the, the you know I, I guess the some of the benefits are pretty obvious they obviously what you, you put it on your put it over your eyes it looks pretty cool why do you think they haven't caught on as much as perhaps we would expect that next generation of tech to catch on i think the price is still kind of uh, up there um i think we're still waiting for kind of like the killer app that everyone can't live uh without uh the technology still needs to make them smaller you know i've like i said i've got the um uh, the MetaQuest uh, headset, and it's 
it's lot. It's a lot. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, after a half an hour of wearing that thing, you know, your head really starts sweating. It, you know, it gets heavy and you get tired. Uh, some people still get uh, sick from wearing them, uh, you know, too long uh, as well. Apparently the Apple ones uh, have really improved uh, on that because of the high resolution screens uh, that uh, they're using. Um, you know, I think for the most part right now, it's probably more the gamers that are into the uh, the VR headsets, uh, you know, whether that's the meta ones or the Sony uh, PlayStation uh, headsets uh, as well. So um, I think it's going to be a gamer thing for the moment. I, you know, I think Apple will try to, um, you know, make it more mainstream and, you know, get into the entertainment aspect, uh, get into the productivity uh, aspect of it. Yeah. Well, ever since Apple, uh, you know, found me buying a, you know, a $700 watch that's essentially disposable after a few years, I I have deep faith in their ability to make people uh, get into stuff that they don't necessarily need, but, but desperately want. I mean, that's kind of their genius, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, you brought up the watch, right? When that thing came out, uh, you know, everyone was very skeptical of it. It was expensive. But now that is the that's the number one watch in the world, not just with you know. Know, digital watches. It's like the number one watch. Like they just dominated the, the category there. So I, I have no doubt they're going to do well with these uh, these goggles. But, you know, again, uh, it's going to take a few years, uh, you know, to, to build up that app ecosystem and to, to have apps that people just can't live uh, without. Right. To, to go completely low-tech, Mike, uh, favorite board games. We've been talking about that all night. We've got lots of cool ones. Mousetrap, uh, Stratomatic Baseball, obviously Risk, Clue, Trouble, all of those ones. Uh, any favorites from your past? Any any board games that you still still love? Uh, well, you know, I always loved Risk. Uh, there was one game that I played, and I still have it up in my closet, and I break it out and make make my family play it with me every oh, few months. It's, uh, it's called Stock Ticker. Uh, and you oh, find yeah. uh, stocks. Uh, I don't know if you remember that one. I don't think you can even get it anymore. But gosh, I love that one uh, so much. And I've been looking for a, like a, a digital version of that, and uh, haven't been able to find anything yet. I guess maybe I'll have to make it myself somehow. Uh, but yeah, uh, that'd yeah. Be a good idea. yeah. You know, I love Monopoly as well. I, I love the classics. Uh, you know, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I was always a big fan of Clue. I, I don't find like things like I, I just don't find the experiences the same when you play them in whatever you know, app form they've brought out. I just don't find it as much fun to play them that way. But uh, maybe that's just, again, because I'm old. Stock ticker had that great-looking board, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, out of print. It is out of print. Yeah, it, there it is. You'll have, to, you'll, have to, you'll have to resurrect it. You know, you know, but, uh, you know what I've been enjoying? Um, I got uh, one of those Infinity uh, Arcade tables uh, from yeah, Arcade right. One Up, and uh, that is pretty cool. It's like a little mini coffee table. I think I've got, like, the 32-inch screen version. And you can download all kinds of games uh, for it. Like I've got Monopoly and Scrabble, uh, I think Clue. I, you know, there's dozens other. Like I can play Blackjack and, and everything on it uh, as well. So, Super. you know, we can all sit around that and, uh, you know, play some of our favorite games. I think Trivial Pursuit, that's another favorite one, uh, the digital and the, uh, the the virtual one as well on the table. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. Board games are fun, right? Because it just gets the whole family and your friends all together. It does, yeah. No missing pieces, and no one can tip the game over if you do it digitally. Uh, Mike, thanks so much. Thank you. Who done it? Where? And how? Who? Solving this mystery can be murder. the game and win the world.
and risk. Parker Brothers kind of fun. Yeah, clue and risk. Those are two good ones from my youth. I used to always lose at risk for some reason. I don't know why. I think probably because I used to try to take over countries that I'd want to hang out in. And that uh, that wasn't a very good strategy. Uh, Les from Hamilton said, when I was a kid, Stratego was one of my favorites, a sort of variation on chess. Yeah, I remember Stratego that had the bombs and the different ranks of people. That was a really good game, actually. I haven't played that in ages. I wonder if there's one. You know what's fun about modern technologies? You can actually... Uh, find apps of those games and you can kind of even though if you don't have anyone to play with you can you can play against you play against the computer uh which is which is funny you can play any of these games which is um which is a nice way of doing it if you you know say finish work late like i do well board games like monopoly clue and the game of life are iconic for most of us those are the ones we kind of grew up with uh but now there's some designers that are exploring a wider range of topics now it has been done in the past we were talking earlier about all those strategic games that sort of looked at stuff like war history games so on fantasy games there's lots of them right um but these ones are meant to get us to talk about bigger issues. So using that small board to talk about big stuff. One of those games is called Daybreak. It's set to launch this spring, imminently actually, after years of development, to tackle one of the most complex topics of all, and that's how to combat climate change. Uh, Players take the role of world powers like the US, EU, and China. They have to negotiate ways to achieve drawdown, uh, which is the point when greenhouse gas emissions are reduced enough to prevent temperatures from continuing to rise. What's interesting, though, is you play against each other, sort of, but you have to work together, and the whole group will lose if any one player has too many communities in crisis from the impacts of climate change. So just one of the many games that are out there that um, tackle these big sorts of issues. But there were games in the past, I remember as a kid these existed, uh, something like 1970's Litterbug, 1972's Clean Water, that were sort of similar kinds of games for their era, and they helped pave the way for the games of today. Now, uh, Sherry Shu is the curatorial fellow at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia, and she's been compiling a whole bunch of these games to sort of explain the history. And Shu joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. So games are such an interesting topic because they're they're one of those things I think we're all kind of frozen in time when it comes to board games. I think back to, you know, the mid 70s and what I played back then and then maybe a little bit of the 80s and I know people are are you know rediscovered them over time. But what what was your interest in in board games and their many the many different uh, incarnations they come in? Yeah, so I've been interested in board games. I haven't um, specifically, I'm not a huge player of board games, but I've always sort of been interested in watching other people play board games. So here at the Science History Institute um, last fall, we were interested in figuring out how to display the Clean Water Act of 1972 to the public. Right. And as you might imagine, that's a that's it's a, a bit dry. It can be a bit, bit dry. Of an arcane piece of legislature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a little bit hard to get people to to be really interested in this piece of legislation that can be kind of dense, hard to read through. So I started exploring and looking for ways of how did people learn about this. And one of the ways that they learned about it was this game called Clean Water. This magnificent, really, really interesting in terms of illustration, very seventies game. Um, and if anybody wants to see it, it's up on our website at sciencehistory.org. And I learned that it was actually being had been played and developed for Harvard planning classrooms. And in these planning classrooms, there you have these graduate students who are learning how to be the future city managers of the world. And they were playing this game in order to understand how to 
how the, it logistically worked, how the Clean Up Water Act worked, and how it might impact ecosystems. So the point of that game was to go around and to balance out their ecosystems and to figure out how these new laws were going were gonna to impact them and what exactly they could do about taxation and abatement of industrial pollution into their, into their waterways. Wow, that that doesn't sound like playing Clue. It sounds it sounds pretty complex for a board. I mean, I can understand playing it nowadays uh, as a video game, uh, but it would have been pretty difficult as a as a board game concept. And yet, I guess it was a great way, a great learning tool. Yeah, absolutely. So it, so once I got into um, the clean water game, I started discovering that there's this entire history of environmental board games that there that many different people have played them and they've been pitched anywhere from Harvard graduate classrooms all the way to little kids who can't read yet. So three to four year olds who are learning about whether or not they should litter and how to prevent little kids from littering. So it's this huge swath of the population and it's this way of really reaching them in Ways that I don't think traditional mediums can reach, that you can't give somebody a pamphlet on the Clean Water Act or give them pamphlets about the Endangered Species Act or any of these other environmental issues and quite have the nuance of a, of a game. Because in the framework of a board game, it's, a, it's great because people can play as different characters, they can see different outcomes, and it's just a much more fun and dynamic way of getting to these issues. Right. And and interactive, right? As as you mentioned, I, I mean, I remember getting these game, I, you know, when I was a kid, of course, like every young person, I would see the, the, the toys and the games advertised on Saturday morning cartoons and immediately want those. And my parents being, you know, good parents as they were, would often try to foist educational games on me, which I would play, but with sli- somewhat less enthusiasm, but they do stick with you. So they have a long legacy then, these games of sort of taking these major societal issues uh, such as climate and such as you know pollution and um and teaching people more about them through through play absolutely so we see a long legacy of board games um on the environmental side at least for the last 50 years game designers have been trying to reach new audiences through board games and oftentimes they're specifically aimed at these spaces where conversations are happening so in the 1970s a lot of the conversations were happening in classrooms. So these games would often be pitched at classroom education. So you might have somebody in kindergarten playing it. We have one role-playing game that's specifically for kids in middle school and high schools, and obviously in college classrooms. As these games have evolved today, we still see a lot of echoes of that. These games that are really popular right now that are really hitting up, really hitting some highlights here, that these games are being played where we're having conversations, right? That right. we're sitting around tables with our friends and we want to have these conversations. We're a little bit shy about asking questions, maybe, that we don't want to seem like we know a lot less than we do or that we're interested in learning more and don't quite know where to ask questions. And here we can sort of sit around a game table with our friends and it creates the space where we can discuss these issues and these problems and potential solutions. Yeah, and and looking at some of the, especially these days, I mean, you know, we, we I think we think of every era as being more politicized than other eras because the seventies was not an easy time either. Although it felt like certain things, like having a board game in a classroom about you know Love Canal or Three Mile Island, was far more acceptable then than it might be today. Uh, but these are a way of starting conversations. You're saying that a whole new generation of game designers, and I guess you looked into this as part of this whole project, are are tackling some of these same issues like pandemics and climate change and and going about it sort of in a similar way but they obviously have evolved since 72 or 3 right they've evolved in really interesting ways but they've always they also echo these past games right so the games today i think the most interesting turn in the evolution of these games has been that they're much more cooperative now 
in the 70s and 80s, you could actually win at being a water management manager. Right. You, you could, could win at litter. Win at, <laughs> you could yeah, win at litter. Yeah. You could win at being the best manager of the air. One of the um, really great things that these newer games are based around is that everybody has to cooperate. And it's either you lose together or you can win together. And I think that's a really valuable lesson. And one of the other um, evolutions that I've been really fascinated by is the ability of some of these games to have us think about people and places that maybe um, those of us in um, really affluent cities aren't thinking quite as much about. So in the new Daybreak game, you can right. play you can play as the rest of the world, which is one of their terms for the global south. And I think in other games, you might be able to play as a first as First Nations, Indigenous peoples. You can think through how global climate change is going to have an impact on, on women and children in minoritized communities. So I think this way of opening up spaces for us to think as other people and to move from just being concerned with climate change to really thinking about how it's going to impact people on the ground and who's going to be most impacted by these environmental effects are just really fascinating. Yeah. Daybreak, I found, I mean, I was reading the blurb of it. And it, so you can take on, you know, different world powers such as, you know, the US, EU, China, and you have to try to work together. But if one group, and you can be rest of the world as well, but if one group has too many crises, so if one group suffers, in other words, if you, it's not like playing risk, if one group finds itself really at, with the short end of the stick, everyone loses. And that's, uh, uh, and that's an interesting approach. I mean, it, it's, it, you're right. The, the idea that somehow you could win at this doesn't quite um, meet the standards of today, does it? Do you see this evolving? I mean, this must be a way of looking at things. The fact that board games are still around in the era of video games has always been interesting. Uh, that must have been part of it too, their, their ability to survive. Yeah, their ability to survive, and I think that's even more important now, that in a way that video games, uh, and there are some, obviously, video games that deal with the environment, but I think board games really are have found an interesting niche where they're, where they're having people sit around a table together, that it's a face-to-face -face interaction, and in a lot of ways, that's quite different than how you might interact through a video game, right? That if you're cooperating with somebody who's sitting next to you at a table, that's much different than cooperating somebody who might be 50, 100, 1,000 miles away or even on the other side of the world, that these communications are happening in person and that you're really having to negotiate and that you're having to cooperate with somebody who's very close to you and that oftentimes these are going to be your friends and your neighbors or your classmates that you're cooperating with and that you're going to learn to delve into these topics much more deeply than you would perhaps if you're playing in a virtual in a virtual game. And I think in some ways that having somebody here to read something, to read out a card that you can see on a table, that that somehow I think makes these makes these effect, these impacts just that much more real that we know that. A board game is a bit of a fantasy space, right? That things are simplified, things can happen. If you really wanted to be a jerk, you can really be a jerk and <laughs> yeah. say, I'm going or, to or see cheat, how I can throw cheat. this all off and I want everybody else to be a loser. Yeah. But they're a safe place and they're simplified. But in other ways that you're really learning about human cooperation through these games. Right. And and it feels like that's something that um, that games can sort of maybe not necessarily depoliticize an issue. I suppose if you're, you know, if you if you deny the existence of climate change, you might have trouble playing a game like Daybreak. Uh, but at the same time, 
they they are built in a way that's supposed to i mean it felt like the ones in the 70s were purely educational they were really this whole there was this whole stream of educational toys sort of built around the same philosophy as shows like sesame street right which was sort of about teaching people everything was a learnable moment and now that you're right there's a bit more of that um there's a bit more of that cooperation that comes into that comes into play uh how's the reaction been to your to your whole venture because it looks like you put a lot of work into it yeah, when we opened up the exhibit a couple of weeks ago, we had a lot of people who came into our museum space and we had a game night and they were re- um, reacting to the games and they were playing a lot of the newer games. And I think a lot of people have um, have realized that this is really uh, an important moment to be thinking about climate change, obviously, but also the different audiences that we can reach because uh, people who are going to pick up this game they're not going to be climate change deniers. They're going right. to be people who are broadly interested in in climate change. They're broadly interested in the environment, but that this is a good way of teaching them a lot of the nuances and that things are not always black and white. That as you've seen through the games, I'm sure you've examined in your background research that right. they're surprisingly complex and that the a lot of work has gone into making these games. That years of research have gone into gone into thinking about different scenarios and what might occur. Right. I mean, Clean Water, uh, the 1972 game, is a very, first of all, the, the graphics are fantastic. It looks just like Sesame Street. For the, has that real 70s graphic look to it. But these were pretty complicated games to play at the time. How Did people actually enjoy playing them? I'm not sure enjoy is the right term for it, but I think people must have learned, must have learned from them. And um, certainly, I think um, in a lot of the, I think a lot of the games we see today, too, that the complexity seems to be part of the thing that people enjoy about the games is just how complex they are. I think some of the games, um, even today, might only be played once or twice because they take so long to set up and they take so long to think through. But I think what's important is sort of the spaces that are created afterwards. Like sometimes the most important discussions might not even be during the gameplay, that they might be after you've packed up the box and you're talking to your friends afterwards. Just by having this space to talk about these issues makes it really important. Yeah, and I, and I gather from from where you are today, and this is more for you know not board games but real life that you're you're tasting some of that Canadian smoke that's come down your way. Speaking of climate issues, uh, how bad is it? Um, here in Philadelphia, let's just say this morning, um, I saw a lot more masked people than I have in the in the last three or four months. Who are walking around outside? It is it's pretty intense outside today. Yeah, yeah, there's a, well, there's a lot of smoke drifting down your way. Ashu, thank you so much for your time, and congratulations on the exhibit. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the time, Ben. 